Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Well, on Thursday of this past week, a jury found Bill Cosby guilty of drugging and sexually assaulting a woman at his Philadelphia home 14 years ago, capping the downfall of one of the world's best-known entertainers. Until recently, Bill Cosby had established himself as a moralizing public figure, the upstanding father figure in the wildly popular 1980s and 90s sitcom titled The Cosby Show, a reputation that has now been revealed to have been out of touch with reality. The outside, the character didn't match the inside. Cliff Huxtable didn't match Bill Cosby. And no one, no one watching from afar afar at least, had any idea what was truly going on in Mr. Cosby's life. This verdict now marks the bottom of a fall as precipitous as any in show business history. If you haven't noticed, for the last few years, his TV shows, his films, his recorded stand-up performances, which were once broadcast staples, have largely been shunned. And with his conviction this past week, they're likely to remain so. This is because we, we can't watch The Cosby Show anymore without knowing what we know. We can't watch Cliff Huxable anymore without knowing what we know about the person playing Cliff Huxable, about Bill Cosby and his perf, perf, personal life. We now know the truth about Bill Cosby, or so it seems. Well, I begin with this story because it illustrates the main point, at least one of the main points of the sermon this morning, which is simply this. Man cannot know what's inside a man. Man can't know. Man's heart. Man can only judge by outward appearances. And as we see in Bill Cosby's case, outward appearances can be really deceptive. But the good news from our passage today is that that, the one per, that one person does see, and that one person does know everything that goes on inside of a man's heart. And that person, the Lord himself, is never deceived. Hear that this morning. The Lord is never deceived. He never makes a wrong judgment. He never misjudges the outside because he knows man and man's heart. Well, let's, let's read our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll see this dynamic at work. So 1 Samuel 16, I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 23. So 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, Samuel, and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and and say that I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked, that Samuel looked on Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Then Samuel rose and he went to Ramah. Verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to Saul, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful and playing the liar. And, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful and plain, a man of valor and a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and he, and he entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Well, let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, I pray, Lord, I pray this morning that you would satisfy us this morning, this day with your steadfast love in order that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. I pray that we would be glad finding our joy in you and in your word in these moments that follow. I pray that we'd find joy and hope in your word for as long as you give us days and breath on this earth. And that's Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this, this chapter 16 breaks down into, into three sections, and, and so we're going to move section by section. So it's the way that I've broken it down. Verses 1 through 5, we see the Lord sends Samuel. Then in 2, verses 6 through 13, we see the Lord's anointed, or, or the Lord anoints David. And then finally, verses 14 through 23, we're going to see that this providential relationship where David serves Saul, or you could say the, the king serves the king. But David serves Saul, verses 14 through 23. Well, let's begin by, by looking at verses 1 through 5. The Lord sins David. So these verses, if you weren't with us, they pick up right, pick up right where we left off last week at the end of chapter 15. And and there at the end of chapter 15, we saw a tragic ending. And that ending culminated when the Lord rejected Saul and Samuel leaves, abandons Saul as the king. The, the Lord's prophet, Samuel, departed from Saul. And that was the divine verdict on Saul and his kingship. Samuel would no longer be in Saul's service because, as we saw, Saul had been rejected 
because Saul had rejected the Lord. So the Lord says, he, he's, he's no longer king. He's no longer my king. And so as chapter 16 begins, notice how we find Samuel after those events. We find Samuel grieving over Saul, the passage says. So, so, so here we have Samuel. Surely he's, he's grieving over Saul's disobedience. I mean, think about the beginning of the reign of, of the first ever king of Israel. It had shown such signs of promise. The Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon Saul, and there had been great military victory. But now, as Samuel sat, Saul had been rejected. And so I'm sure there's personal grief over Saul and his disobedience, but there's also grief in Samuel's heart over how Saul's fall has left Israel. There's no God-fearing king. The king that Israel had didn't fear God, didn't obey God. And so now the Israelites were without a king, or at least without God's king. And Samuel is grieving. And so I just want to stop and make one immediate point of application. That's the, the art or the practice of grieving. I think we see that. I think we see an example here. Now, often when we think about grieving, we think about the loss of, of physical life. So we think about a loved one who, who loses someone to, to death. And we say, well, that's cause for grief. Well, that, well, that's true. But here, in this passage, Samuel's grief seems to be of a different kind, a different sort. It seems to be a type of spiritual grief. It appears that Samuel is distraught over the state of things in Israel. He's grieving over Saul and the state of God's people because of Saul's sin. And the thing that I want to note here is that Samuel was, was grieving. That, that's an emotional response to what had happened. He was grieving. He wasn't boiling over in anger. Notice that that's not what he... If there's anyone who had a right to be angry, it was Samuel. But look, what, look what it Saul had thrown away. But he wasn't angry. Instead, he grieved. And I just want to suggest that, that we ought to consider, we ought to ask ourselves, what grieves us? What things grieve you? What, what, what are things that cause you grief or things that you mourn over? Do you, do you have things that grieve you, that you mourn over? Or more specifically, do you grieve over spiritual things? Because I think in Samuel, I think we see an example that our emotional lives should be wrapped up in the spiritual well-being of God's people. You see, I'll repeat that. I think our spiritual lives, our emotional lives ought to be wrapped up in the spiritual well-being of God's people. And what I mean to say is we ought to grieve. We ought to legitimately feel pain and anguish when things aren't going well for God's people. We ought to feel pain when brothers and sisters in Turkey are being imprisoned for their faith. When the church is suffering persecution, we ought to, we ought to grieve over that. Or we ought to feel pain and grief over the illegal status of Christianity in places like China or North Korea. Or think about the state of Christianity in our own nation. Does that grieve you? I mean, it seems like it's every week now, but, but the revelation of a popular or well-known pastor who's convicted of abuse or, or immorality. Do you just get angry? Or does that grieve you? I mean, just yesterday we had the Walk for Life. I, I thought about the abortion industry. Countless number of lives are aborted. A countless number of lives are killed every day in this nation. Does that grieve you? Does it grieve you that we've, we live in a nation where abortion is not only practiced, but it's staunchly defended? Does that grieve you? Or, let's get closer to home. If we didn't baptize another person this year, would you, would you notice? Would that, would that bother you if, if you, maybe in your Sunday school class, if you perceived a lack of spiritual growth among your other members? Or in our church family, what would you notice? 
Would it grieve you that the church wasn't maturing as God desires? Or if a church member abandoned the faith, would you know? And would it grieve you? Would you plead with the person? Would you, would you visit them? I think in Samuel, we see an example. We see the art of grieving, the practice of grieving. I think we see the role and necessity of grieving in the life of God's people. Well, Samuel is grieving. And so in verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? How long are you going to grieve over him since I've rejected him? I've rejected him. Get up. Stop grieving. I think we see the time for grieving comes to an end at some point. You've got to do something. And so the Lord says to Samuel, get up. You're, you're going to Jesse because there I've provided for myself a king. The Lord tells Samuel, it's, it's time to stop grieving. You've got a job to do. And not just any job. You, Samuel, you are going to go and you're going to anoint the next king of Israel. So Samuel is charged with going and anointing the next king. And this time it will be the king that the Lord has provided for himself. Which we get the sense that it's going to be different than Saul. And so notice verse 2, Samuel's response. How can I go? How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. In other words, Samuel says, wait a minute, Lord. I know that you've rejected Saul as king, but there's one, rejected Saul as king, but there's one small problem. He's still the king. If he hears that I'm going to, to the town of Bethlehem to anoint another king, that's not going to end well for me. I'm, I'm in fact, going to be killed by Saul. Which, just, just an aside, I think that, that shows us how far Saul has fallen. He thinks, I'm going to be killed by the king. The prophet fears for his life from the king that, that's supposedly God's man. That, that tells us something about the state of Saul. But look, the Lord, knowing, knowing the dilemma, tells Samuel, he says, Go and take an animal to sacrifice and, and tell anyone who asks, I, I've come to, to offer a sacrifice. This isn't a, a, a God-ordained lie. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. He's not telling the whole truth. But the Lord tells him to say that. So he can't say that, that the Lord has told him to lie. But he says, go, there, go and, and say you're going to offer an animal. So then, after you do that, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'm going to show you what to do. I'll tell you who to anoint as the next king. I'll tell you who to anoint as my king. So that's exactly what Samuel does. He approaches Bethlehem, and as he comes, the, the elders of the city, they're trembling. What, what, what does the prophet of God have to do with our small city? Is there some great sin here that he's come to, to, to find out? What, what's he here for? Do you come in peace, they ask him? Of course, Samuel says, no, I've come in peace. I, I've just come to offer an animal sacrifice. So, so you elders, you, you cleanse your hands and, and you um, consecrate yourselves, and you come, and, and also Jesse and his sons, they'll come also. So this is kind of like an invitation-only ceremony. Which then brings us to verses 6 through 13, that the Lord's anointed. So in verse 13... We jump right into this anointing ceremony. And so the attention immediately focuses on the sons of Jesse. And so as we read, we're anticipating, who's the next king? Who's it going to be? And so first up, we have Eliab, the oldest, we find out later. It's the oldest son. And upon seeing him, Samuel thinks, this was easy. One for one, I got it. This is him. I'm going to rise, anoint, and I'll get out of here. Word won't travel to Saul yet. Let's just get this over with. And so that's just upon seeing him. That's, that's his judgment. From all outward appearances, he probably looked a lot like Saul. A, a clear picture of, of what a leader, a powerful leader would look like. This man was a perfect candidate, thinks Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, and, and what I would say is the most important verse in this chapter, verse 7, he says, Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Why? Because I've rejected him. This one that you think is, is the, the, the sure shot 
I've rejected him. Same language that is used of Saul. Then he gives a reason. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Okay, so, so, so my grading scale, you, you can't even come close to it. But I, I have my grading scale, and, and I judge, I look on the heart. I'm not deceived by appearances. The Lord sees what man cannot. The Lord sees the inside. The Lord makes fully informed decisions based on the whole person, not just what meets the eye. And so the Lord tells Samuel, it's not him. Bring the next one. So, so they have this process of going through, and, and I assume it's the oldest to youngest. They just, just roll them through, cycle them through. Next is Abinadab. It's not him. Shammah, not him. Until all seven of the sons, I mean, think about it, seven of them, and, and, and Samuel's anticipation, okay, maybe this is the one. Nope, nope, nope. And none of the seven are chosen. None of them meet the Lord's standards. None of them, as Samuel told, rise and anoint, this is the one. They're all rejected from being the next king. And so Samuel's left with a dilemma after all the sons have passed by. And so he, he knows two things. He knows, one, that, that God has chosen one of Jesse's sons. But he also knows that every son that's passed by is not the one. So there's a dilemma. And so Samuel says, well, is there anyone else? Did I, miss, did I mishear God? Because I'm pretty sure he says one of your sons, and I'm pretty sure he didn't say it was any of them. Is there, is there anyone else? And Jesse says, well, oh, yeah, there's, there's the youngest. But, but he's keeping the sheep. As if the, the response would be, oh, okay, yeah, someone's got to keep the sheep. I understand. It's okay. Right? Well, well why does he say that? It's because no one thinks David is, is possibly the one. I mean, someone had to keep the sheep, so, so why not take the, the son that it's not going to be? He was excluded from this event for a reason, because he wasn't the likely candidate. There's no way that he was the one Samuel was looking for, so his dad and brothers think. But Samuel responds, go get him. We're not doing anything else until he's here. Go get him. Verse 12, David arrives, he's brought in, and the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. It's the unlikely one. It's David, the youngest. The Lord's chosen king has been identified, and there's no doubt about it. Did you see that? At least from Samuel's perspective, there's no doubt about it. It is clear, this is the one, and it's not who anyone would have expected. And just like that, upon the Lord's divine testimony, the divine affirmation, Samuel recognizes the one that he was sent to find, and he anoints him right there in the midst of his brothers. Think about Joseph. Think about the brothers' thoughts as they see their youngest being anointed by the prophet of the Lord. And we see God's strange and refreshing way of, of trampling on human standards here. Again, we see how the Lord chooses the most unlikely people to do his will. And how he frequently stands human logic upside down on its head. And then notice what happens next. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so, so the prophet anoints him, and then the Lord anoints him. He, he, he gives his spirit, which leads to a, an immediate point of application, which is, which is this, the Lord's power. So we see in David, we see the role of the Lord's spirit. The role of the Spirit of the Lord in equipping or enabling David in his service as king. And we shouldn't forget that, that this, this is the same spirit that once rushed upon Saul. You remember when, when Saul was prophesying, the spirit came upon him and, and he was prophesying with, with the prophets. Although we, we will see, uh, we saw in, in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. We shouldn't forget that when the Lord calls someone to serve him, he accompanies that call with aid, with, with power, with divine help, with his own spirit. And so the pattern we see at work, which, which continues to this day, is that the spirit of God equips the people of God to carry out the work of God. I mean, that's the pattern we see that, that is still at work today. The Spirit of God equips the people of God to carry out the work of God. It's true of Saul, it's true of David, 
I mean, I thought, but it's true of, of David's greater son, Jesus himself. Do you remember when he, when he commenced his, his earthly ministry at his baptism? What does the Lord do? He sends his spirit. And John saw him like a dove falling on Jesus. And so Jesus is led by the spirit. And I just want to say, if you're here and you're a believer in Christ, you too have received the powerful spirit of God. The Spirit who is at work in you, the Spirit who has worked through you, Christian, you have sufficient power to do what you've been called to do, no matter what it is. You have been given the Spirit of God. I mean, I remember a, a few weeks ago when, when we, we, had, we came to the point where, where Saul received the Spirit, I made a similar application. And I remember that week, going home from, from church on Sunday, I remember thinking to myself, in the midst of difficulty, I, I remember thinking, I can be the Father that I'm called to be because I have God's Spirit. I can be the father I'm called to be because I have God's spirit. I can be the husband I'm called to be because I have God's spirit. I can be the pastor I'm called to be because I have God's spirit. God has called me and equipped me to do what he's called me to do. So brother or sister, you're not called to do something that's too hard for the spirit who's at work within you. No matter how hard it is. And so the same thing that's true for me is true for every Christian here today. You have the spirit of God within you and because of that, because of that, your, your perspective ought to mostly be that of hope and encouragement. Now, that should characterize your, your perspective mostly. Majority of the time, you should say, I can do this. The Lord's with me. He's, he's equipped me. He's empowered me to do this. Well, another application from these verses that I see is a difference that, that, that's highlighted between God and man. I see a difference that's highlighted. The Lord sees not as man sees. I mean, that's what the Lord tells Samuel. And I see two ways that this applies to us. First, I think we ought to apply this internally. And what I mean is by internally is I, I think we ought to live our lives in light of this reality. In light of this reality that the Lord sees and knows our hearts. I mean, this is a testimony of Scripture. You do not live covered or hidden from the face of God. You live before the face of God. And I think that's an application of this for you. Psalm 94, 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. Or Hebrews 4, 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. Or Psalm 139, 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And so we have to apply this internally. We live our lives before the face of God. This truth ought to affect us. I mean, how, how easy, how many times have you taken comfort in the truth that God never leaves you or forsakes you? It's easy to take comfort in that, but that same truth should also make us feel uncomfortable especially when our insides aren't matching our outsides, right? We're not fooling the Lord. You may fool us. You may fool your family. You may fool your pastor, but you're not fooling the Lord. You ought to be uncomfortable if your inside doesn't match your outside. And so the result of applying this internally is, ende in ende is endeavoring to make our insides match our outsides. So we ought not to try and deceive others regarding our sin, we don't become expert pretenders. That, that's not how we do this. We're honest with others. We're honest with ourselves. We're honest with the Lord about who we really are. We have nothing to hide. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is our cry from start to finish. And so we try and live holy lives. We try and fight sin. We try and turn from sin, and we pursue holiness. And so our, our aim is that the same truths that we're proclaiming with our mouths are matched by our lives. And I think the fact that we live before the face of God is, is a help there. But second, I think we ought to apply this relationally or, or externally as it relates to others. 
both inside and outside the church, we must be very careful not to make judgments that could be contrary to the Lord's. The Lord knows the heart. And so, so in relating with non-Christians, you have to be careful to say that that person is definitely not a Christian, as if outward appearances determine who's a Christian and who's not. You have to be careful not to say, well, that person could never come to the Lord. I think this, uh, for, for our sake, for our immediate context, I think this is a generational application. And I think it cuts both ways. And so, young people, you must be careful not to judge, according to appearance, the old people. Right? There's a stereotype. Old people are stuck in their ways. They're crotchety. They're stubborn. Right? Most of you would say, that's not me. Maybe some of you would say, they're right. <laughs> but as young people, right, we cannot judge externally. We, we have to be careful. We can't do that because the Lord sees the heart. And so old people, you, 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 would, t- you would want someone to say, no, no, that's not me. Get to know me. That's not me. And it also goes the other way. Old people, you must be careful not to judge according to appearance. Right? Yeah, kids these days wear crazy things. Right? They mark their bodies in ways that you, would, you, you, oh, you can't imagine. Or put things in their ears that you can't imagine. But you have to be careful not to make judgments that, that could counter what the Lord sees. The Lord changes the heart, and sometimes the externals don't change in terms of appearance. And that's okay. That is okay. The Lord sees the heart, and if someone is professing the Lord, we ought to be careful to receive them. And so on both sides of the spectrum, whoever walks through that door proclaiming the name of Christ, we ought to welcome in the name of the Lord and, and, and welcome with Christian love. And so solution, the solution to, to applying this externally, what, the answer, I mean, we can't know everyone for sure, so I'm not saying you, you get to know everyone and then you can make a right judgment, but you can certainly try by getting to know someone. Right? Choose that person that you've judged. Maybe the Lord's brought them to your mind right now. This is your excuse to go say, you know what, when the pastor was talking, I thought about you and I'm sorry. Would you go to lunch with me? Right? We, we move past outward appearances, and we involve ourselves in the life of others. I mean, what other gathering, what other social community has 80-year-olds and 20-year-olds that, that are united for a common purpose? The church is unique in that. Well, finally, let's look at our last section. David serves Saul, verses 14 through 23. And so in we, these verses, we see an ironic relationship that forms, especially in light of what's just taken place in verses 13 and 14. And in these verses, we see a relationship formed between the Lord's anointed one and the Lord's rejected one. Notice the, the intentional contrast made between Saul and David with verse 13 and verse 14. So in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Whereas just in verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Do you see that? that, that that's a divide. That's a contrast that we are intended to see. So it's departed from Saul. The Spirit has departed from Saul and has come upon David. And so it's marked by prophetic action by the anointing of David, but also marked by the presence of the Spirit. The Lord has done this. The Lord has made this distinction. He's removed his Spirit from Saul and given him to David. Now, now notice, not only does the Spirit of the Lord leave Saul, and that's bad enough, but also a harmful spirit from the Lord torments Saul. Do you see that? A harmful spirit in some translations, other translations say an evil spirit. I mean, it's the same, this, this is the word for evil. So an evil spirit from the Lord torments Saul. 
I won't say much about that, but, but we can't miss that. I think this is a continuation of the Lord's judgment of Saul. I think the Lord is just in doing this. But for the sake of our, our, our purpose, the bigger picture, it's just for us to say what the, the, the Lord has left Saul. He's no longer Lord's king. He's moving on. David is the next one. But here in these verses, upon seeing this evil spirit, some of Saul's servants, they recognize the Lord has sent this spirit to torment you. Why don't we get someone to play some music to aid you, to help you? And Saul says, yeah, that's, that's right. Go do that. Go find someone for me. And then we have an unnamed man who says, wait a minute, I think one of David's sons I, I know one of them that plays skillful. And not only that, notice how else David is described here. Man of valor, man of war, prudent in speech, man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So, so, so this unnamed man knows all that about David. And so Saul, upon hearing that, thinks, well, this is a good guy to have around, it sounds like. So go get him. And so they send to Jesse and, and bring David there. Saul sends for David. Jesse sends David, and David enters the service of the king. And David finds great favor in Saul's sight. And David serves the king. I mean, I, I just, just think about that. David goes here knowing what's true of him, knowing he's been anointed, knowing he's the next king, yet he still goes and serves in the king's court. What a humble leader. He, he goes willingly. And so Saul invites the future king into his service. And, and what we see, I think, here is, is God's plan working out. The Lord's providence is at work. And so we see Saul unknowingly playing his part in God's sovereign plan. Saul invites the next king into the castle, into the palace. And even though this relationship between Saul and David will soon change, right here we see Saul loves David. Right? That, that's going to change dramatically. Saul will hate David and will over and over and over try and kill David. But even then, even as Saul is trying to kill David, God's plan won't be derailed. God is working out his plan, which is the last point of application, the one we close with, which is simply the, the providence of God at work. The providence of God at work in this story, the fact that God is working all things according to his will. I think this is cause for great comfort for us. I mean, it's sometimes difficult for us to think that God is actively orchestrating our lives in all of its intricate details in the same way that he's involved in the, in the lives of David and Sam. I mean, actually, I mean, David and Samuel, this, this is biblical history. This is pretty important, but, but our lives? Our addresses, does he really care about that? Is he really at work in our lives? I think this tells us that, that in the same way that he's at work in David's life, he's at work in your life, Christian. The reality is that God is involved in every aspect of your and my life. He's working all things, not only according to his will, but listen to this, he's working all things according to your good, for your good. I mean, this is comforting. This is comforting to know that God's providential working is, is for our good. Christian, if not a hair falls from your head apart from God's knowledge, then what possibly could happen apart from his intimate knowledge in your life? So, so be encouraged, Christian. Let, let's, let's pray as we close.